0: Today you'll meet Emily. Emily is my first daughter without a dad to share on the podcast. This podcast is being released on the 5th year anniversary of her father's death. Emily created her Instagram account at The Invisible Wounds 2 years into her grief journey. It was her outlet and continues to provide her and others with support and encouragement as there are times when people in real life still struggle to understand her grief. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. And now, Emily's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Although today I have with me my first daughter without a dad. Today I have with me Emily, and she, you might know her better as the Invisible Wounds profile on Instagram. I don't even know if you are on Facebook, are you? Nope. Yeah, your, your generation never is. I don't know. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Instagram is so much easier to facilitate. So um, you might know Emily as as at the invisible wounds on Instagram, um, and she has very graciously agreed to share with me today the story of her dad, Patrick. And um, ironically, as we were talking before we started recording, I said, yeah, I think it's five years that your dad's been gone. And she said, yeah, it'll be five years on Tuesday. And I said, well, Tuesdays are when I release podcasts. So we're recording this on the Friday. It's going to be released on Tuesday, which is the actual date of um, her dad's Heaven's Day. So I'm going to turn it over to Emily and let her tell you her story. And then if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I'll come back at the end and we'll do some Um, questions together. So thanks so much for being here today, Emily.
1: Thank you for having me. It's Mm -hmm. been a pleasure to get to know you. I've loved listening to the podcast and I'm excited, a little bit nervous and ready to kind of share my story on here. Um, So yeah, I'm Emily and I I'm now 23, but as Beth just said, five years ago um, on Tuesday, I lost my dad. He um, had been battling cancer for three years at that point. Um, I guess it's good to start at the beginning of that story. Um, when I was just before I, or yeah, I was 15 um, when he was diagnosed with stage four um, squamous cell carcinoma in his um throat and neck. And, um, I had actually heard in the podcast of, um, that I'd listened to a while ago, a platitude that someone had said was, you know, if you, if you're going to get any cancer, this is the kind you want. And that really struck home with me. Cause that was something that most every doctor and relative and person kind of said when he was diagnosed, they were like, don't let stage four scare you. If you were going to get cancer, this is the kind you want. And I remember the day my dad told me, he was like, it's like a cold. I'll be totally fine. Um, And, you know, I, it was shocking and scary to hear that word. Obviously cancer carries so much weight with it, but everyone was just, you know, he had a, I think it's a 98% cure rate and we just were jumped right into the plan. My dad always kind of said, you just got to get the plan and work the plan. And then, you know. feel better once you're kind of in those steps so we jumped right into um radiation and chemotherapy we luckily live right near a wonderful hospital um and he was in treatment for we found out in may he started treatment i believe in june and then he finished um in august the day before my 16th birthday um and yeah it was obviously uh you know it was awful for him the side effects were tough and Um, It was very hard to watch someone you love go through that, but he never really skipped a beat. He was still going to work and he was still, you know, being kind of the same father he always was. And he always kind of had this invincible trait to him. And so it kind of just felt like, okay, we did that. We're done. We wait for the scans and everything will be a-okay. And so three months after he finished, we got the scans back that he was cancer-free and they were... So blown away by how free his body looked that they decided not to do regular scans every three months after that, which is definitely a point of contention in our household on that decision. Um, but we just trusted his doctors. We, you know, we had no other knowledge on that area and we really liked his doctors. And so He went on and we had about a year where he was, you know, getting back to his normal self. Cancer was kind of, you know, we thought it was a chapter that we had closed and we just, you know, life went on. I was 16. My sister was 14 and we just were, you know, she was about to enter high school. I was in my sophomore into junior year and we just were kind of rolling with things until um, we found out that the cancer had come back and it was the december of my senior year um and we had found out that the kids are metastasized and moved to the base of his nasal pharynx which pushes pushes up against the bottom of your skull Um, and they didn't want to radiate because of the damage that they thought it could potentially do to his brain because it would have to pass through the brain to get to the tumor um and so it became this host of, so then what do we do? Um, and so we got a bunch of second opinions and they suggested this facial surgery where they kind of would like reconstruct his face to go in through the front to be able to get it. And the outcome was definitely high that he would survive the surgery, but the side effects were supposed to be gruesome and they didn't think he would ever, you know, be able to talk again. They didn't think he'd be able to eat on his own. And so while we were kind of figuring this all out, they knew that it had metastasized also into his lymph nodes in his neck. So they took out um, 13 of those while we were kind of figuring out the process of what we were going to do next. And we ended up finding a hospital in Texas, which I'm from Connecticut. So Texas is obviously not where we wanted to be um, that offered this specific type of new therapy. I get it confused if it's proton or photon. I think it's proton, um, is the new one. And they offered this and it was like this new up and coming, um, technology where it wouldn't go through the brain. Somehow it would only, it only would target the mass itself. And so there's supposed to be way less damage to the brain um, and while talking to them they actually had started saying that they knew of a hospital in New Jersey that was also going to start was you know had just gotten their first proton machine and would start being able to give this therapy and so my parents went to visit the hospital in New Jersey they ended up absolutely loving the doctors there um, and were able to work with the doctors at our hospital that were close to home so he could do chemo while we were home for the months leading up to when he would they moved to New Jersey for a couple of months to go, um, and get that therapy. And I was a senior at the time, like I said, and my sister was a freshman. So we collectively decided that my sister and I would stay back for those few months and we would stay home. And we did not really want a relative staying with us. We luckily are very responsible children that my parents decided that we could do it on our own. Um, and so they, in I believe March um, of my senior year, they moved to New Jersey and they were like in a long-term hotel. Um, We had just gotten a puppy a couple months before. So we would trade off whether the dog was home with us or in New Jersey with them. Um, And so he would go have his therapy, have his treatments in um, at the doctors in New Jersey. And they would try to come home on the weekends if they could. um, But after like five days of treatment a week, he would usually not really be up to the drive home new jersey is about a three hour drive um from where we are so not crazy but um so they would try to make it home on some weekends and but most of the time it was my sister and i at home which was definitely a crazy experience um i'm the older sister so i was you know kind of in charge which she didn't love that her sister was then in charge of her but we luckily had amazing family and friends that helped drop off dinners and um Help around the house, but it was a lot of thrown into being, kind of a mom of a teenager while also trying to graduate high school and you know navigate things like prom and end of, you know end of college or end of high school career and then looking forward to college. Um, it was definitely a crazy year, um, but I thankfully had really great friends and family at the time that helped us get through. But it was a lot of grocery shopping, taking care of a home, taking care of a puppy, a teenager it was wild while also trying to balance the fact that you know your parents aren't home because they're dealing with something so major and you're you know constantly worried about your dad and you can't you know you can't be like hands-on helping which I feel like is often I feel better when I'm at least using my hands to do or you know helping in a physical sense but so anyways um they it was, I think, two days before my prom, they were able to finish treatment and come home. It kind of got pushed back a few times. But so the middle of June, they were able to come home. I had prom that earlier that weekend. And then I graduated, I think the Thursday after. So they made it in the nick of time to be home um, for that. And he, unfortunately, the side effects were a lot worse that time around. Um, he had, a because it was so targeted in his face and his neck and his mouth, um, he had a really hard, hard time eating. And so he lost a lot of weight. Um, and just his fatigue was crazy high. His energy was low. Um, and he just was not someone who liked to miss out on anything. So he really struggled knowing that the only thing he could do is rest, but just wanting so badly to see people and to make up for the time that, you know, he had been away and it was definitely a, you know, a big milestone time in my life, and you know, he wished he could be more present. Um, but I was more than grateful that they even were able to be home for that. Um, and so it kind of kicked off the summer of just trying to help him recover, trying to soak up memories as a family before I moved away. Um, at that point, I had decided to go to a college in Boston. Um, which uh, a family member had gone to and it was a super exciting thing for the family Um, and I was really excited and it wasn't until I got there to move in day that I was like something feels off it feels like I should not be away from my family right now Um, and so I definitely struggled that first semester I finished a semester I got through it but I didn't, I wasn't much of a social butterfly. I was kind of just constantly FaceTiming home and trying to see how things were going. Um, My dad's scans were still looking good at that point. The therapy had seemed to, you know, to work and we saw everything shrinking and all things were, you know, looked like they were a go on that. Um, And my dad was trying to go back to work. And even some days he would call me at the end of the day and be like, do you want to visit her I could come up for dinner and you know he would just fly right up to to Boston it was only like a two hour drive from home but he would just race on up and um, come and visit and it somehow always seemed like he knew I was having a bad day before I even told him Um, and so yeah so I got through that semester but the day that I got home um, after I finished finals they um, I grew to know that family meetings were never a good thing but they once they was like minutes after I walked through the door they said time for a family meeting um, and that's when they said that the cancer had come back for the third time um so that was the middle of December in 2016 um, and yeah we knew um that after the last therapy knowing that we had to use such a we had to we reverted to you know such a unique and specialized therapy we knew there really weren't a lot of options left if it had ever come back Um, so we talked to the doctors and there was a clinical trial that he could um, try which immunotherapy is becoming way more common now but at the time um, it was very up and coming and was still in clinical trials so we made the decision as a family to sign right up um, to try this option and we you know it was Obviously it got it got scary every time it came back. It got scarier, but we had just always gotten through it that we kind of were like, you know what? We'll get through it again. Like there was just no evidence that we wouldn't just feed it again as a family. Um, and so I was very grateful to be home um, and to spend those months at home with him. Um, I knew instantly that I would not be going back to school the semester after. Um, I didn't make that decision for a few weeks, but I knew in my soul that I was really supposed to be home. Um, And that was definitely something that was hard for him to hear. He didn't want me to have to stay home, um, but he knew that he didn't want to deny me that privilege of getting to be with him. Um, So as he was going through the um, immunotherapy, he was still really struggling to and so he was moved to a feeding tube um, and we did it all from home. So my mom and I decided to start taking shifts because she just couldn't do it all on her own. Um, So we would take 12-hour shifts the night and the day um, and would switch off who would be up with my sister, who would be bringing her to school. Um, She was a sophomore in high school at the time, who would be kind of taking care of the house and who would be with dad. Um, And so I just kind of got thrown into a caregiver role and it was definitely intimidating but it was also like i said before it just felt like i was physically able to do something to help um so it was a great kind of outlet for me and there was no place i would rather have been than by his side so i learned how to use feeding tubes and learned how to administer medications and um just i don't know i felt like my brain was just expanding every day i'd be like youtubing different machines and how to make them work and you know calling doctors that we New or family friends that were in the medical field and just being like, you got to walk me through this. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Um, but we just kind of figured it out. And there'd be nights that he, you know, would just never sleep. And so we'd stay up all night. And there, you know, the other nights that he'd be sleeping, but I'd be too afraid to sleep. So I'd stay up and I'd see my sister getting up and ready to go to school in the morning. And I hadn't gone to bed yet. Um, it was definitely a very weird experience, but it also was I feel like the most fulfilling experience of my life. Um, I felt it in the moment, but I think looking back on it, I'm really able to absorb how special it was that I got to spend every single day with them. Um, and so when it came time to make the decision to go back to school, I said, there's no way <laughs> you're not going to get me to leave. Um, but it felt hard to admit that I wasn't going back in fear of what might've been happening. Cause I still think in my head, I was like, no, no, there's still like a huge chance he's gonna beat this. Like, I just was not willing to accept the reality that he wouldn't, but I just knew, even if he did beat it, I was like, I just, I can't not be home while he's going through this. Um, But I remember feeling a lot of, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but I remember feeling it was a really hard decision because I didn't want to be admitting to anyone, but specifically to him, I didn't want it to seem like I was fearful and that I was making the decision because I was fearful. Um, And so it was definitely very hard for him to know that I was staying home um, because of him. But like I said before, he didn't want to stand in the way of me being able to be there with him. So we, so I didn't go back to school. I stayed home. Um, So I made that decision in the middle of January and I stayed home until, well, I stayed home that full semester, but um, we kind of were in that role of the 12-hour shifts and caregiving. And I just... I was home every single day until um, February twelfth. Um, he routinely would go into the hospital for um, IVs to get to some hydration because, like I said, it was he wasn't really eating much on his own, getting many fluids in, so it was very regular um, for him to go into the hospital. So I had um, had the day shift for that day. My mom had had the night, so she woke me up in kind of the middle of the morning. It was maybe like four or five a.m., and she was like, "I'm taking your dad." into the hospital no big deal we'll be back in a few hours just get your sister off to school um and so that's what we did and um brought her in oh I wasn't picking her up from school I was picking her up from a retreat that she was on through our um the church that we were in and um, I went to pick her up and was sitting in the parking lot and I got a call my aunt was calling me and I was like that's so strange I don't know why she's calling me Um, And she was like, where are you? Uh, We're at your house. We're waiting for you. Like, just, you know, just let you know we're home waiting for you or whatever. And so I was like, that's very strange. I texted my mom and I was like, why did aunt so-and-so just call me? Um, And I feel like I knew something was going on. um, But then there was a huge snowstorm that day. So the bus that was taking my sister back was delayed and um, they had just gotten there. My aunt called again and she was like, okay, you really need to hurry. You need to get your sister and you need to come home um and so I just I started crying I happened to see one of my sister's friends in the parking lot and I was like please go get her and just tell her she has to come at her I think I scared the living daylight to the poor girl but um so my sister got in the car and she saw me bawling and she was like what's going on and I was like I don't know but we have to get home um and like I said it was a blizzard so we're like we was fending for our lives trying to get home out of the parking lot and my sister luckily is the um very grounded one and she was like you have to stop crying long enough to get home you are the only one who can drive us home you need to have clear eyes she gave me a pep talk and she was like we gotta we have to get home safely so we got home we immediately got in my aunt and uncle's car and they said we're taking you to the hospital your mom's asked you to come to the hospital and so at this point the highways are shut down we're the only car on the roads we're driving in like the middle of two lanes I think my sister and I were at this point almost laughing just because we were like, what is going on? Like, this is crazy. We're the only car on the road. We definitely turned to laughter in our anxious moments, but um, we got to the hospital and a bunch of my family members were already there. We were so confused. The doctors kind of pushed us into that little family room that no one ever wants to be pushed into. And my mom was crying and she said, when I got here, the ER doctor stopped me and said, you know what's happening and my mom was like of course not he's just you know he's coming in for hydration the ER doctor the er doctor had just said you know he's showing a lot of signs of end of life um i really think hospice should be considered and so that was kind of a hit us like a train that had you know we were not expecting that at all no doctors had said you know that he seemed like he was getting to that point no doctors had said this is the amount of time you have left There was never any talk of any end of life. There was, so it was, it really, really, I mean, threw us out of our orbit completely. We were shocked. And um, by the time that my sister and I got up to the hospital room, he was um, really heavily sedated. And, you know, hearing those words, we kind of thought it would happen at any moment. And we were. Just like laid around the hospital bed. Luckily, he was able to be in hospice care in the hospital. We didn't have to move him, um, which was something I didn't even know existed before our experience. Um, but it was, we were really grateful that we didn't have to go through all the um, hoops to try to move him to another facility. But so he was kind of stayed sedated like that for, I would say, maybe three days. Um, and it was kind of just this we had no idea what was going to happen. Was he going to pass? Was he going to wake up? There was just, Those were probably the worst three days of the whole hospice journey just because it was so unknown but then on the third day he woke up he was totally normal he was walking around he was you know doing all just everything like he was at home and we were like okay it's a mistake he didn't need to be in hospice like we are gonna go home um and the doctors kind of were slowly saying, you know, he had to be on steroids because of pain management, but if he was on steroids, he couldn't be in immunotherapy. So he had to stop the trial, which was, I think, um, really a tough blow to hear, but I think we still were just like, okay, but he'll start back on the trial when he's off steroids. It was a lot of, I think no one really telling us like it was and us just assuming that that meant that everything was fine. So yeah, so he kind of had an up and down of every few days, he would kind of get into that deep sleep, needed a lot of medication for the pain, and he wasn't really alert or aware of anything. But then a couple of days later, he'd be his totally, completely normal self, cracking jokes and having lots of visitors, his college friends, his high school friends, um and if if anyone walked in the door with tears in his eyes he'd say he'd be like this is not a goodbye there's no tears we're just this is just a normal visit um and so I'm so grateful that we had all that time and all those people were able to come see him but I also think it was really confusing for people to I don't know it was my first experience with hospice and I definitely expected it to feel very different It, it didn't feel sad even it just it was we were just laughing and, you know, sharing memories. And, um, my mom, my sister, and I all slept in the hospital room every single night for the whole, we were there for three weeks. Um, and we just, we never left each other's sides. It was like a shoebox sized room, but we lived in it. We depended on, you know, hospital food and whatever laundry people could drop off to us. And we're like, you know, washing our hair in the sink. Um, but it just didn't matter. We were all together and we would, you know, bunker in at night. There was one couch and we would, you know, take turns who had to sleep on the cot that they would roll in, who got to sleep. Um, sometimes someone would sleep in the bed with him and it was kind of just, we were like sardines in there, but we just wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. And then um, two days before he passed away, his family came and actually said that his mom had been put on hospice care um and the day after she was put into hospice care she passed away and then about 24 hours later my dad passed away um so it was a horrible few days obviously um so he passed away on march 8th she passed away on march 7th um and we joke that his dad had actually passed away when he was 11 from cancer as well um, but we joked that she had just gotten to heaven to see him and my dad <laughs> spoiled the party a day later, didn't give him <laughs> any time to catch up. Um, but it was a very, almost weirdly comforting feeling to know that they had kind of passed so close together and were taking that journey together. But it was obviously the most devastating time of our family's lives. Um, she was, you know, the matriarch. She. Um, I could go into a whole host of a history about her, but she um, met my dad's dad when she was in Australia, and his dad had been stationed there in World War II, Um, and he was a lot older than her, but at 20 years old, she married him and moved to America. Um, She was told she'd never be able to have kids, and then she had 12. Um, My dad was the baby, and they were just, you know, a huge family that operated off of nothing but love and sense of humor (laughs) to get them through um but so we were really lucky to have a huge family that rallied around us in that time but was a lot of grieving hearts that were definitely very confused very angry at the situation how could you take both of them you know so close together um and it was yeah i mean i won't sugarcoat it i feel like most people listening to this know just how awful it is but it was felt like it came out of nowhere even though we had had three weeks in hospice it felt like that you know should have prepared us but i just don't think there's anything that ever prepares you for losing the person that you love um and we were kind of thrown into the services for my grandmother um so we had four days back-to-back wakes funeral wake funeral um and it was probably the most four draining days of my life Um, and there was lots of people visiting thankfully there were so many people that came um from all different walks of life all around the world um but it was like weirdly you know you're surrounded by all these people but you just feel so lonely because the one person that you really want to be there isn't there um and i guess i've kind of glossed right over our relationship my dad's and i but um he was I mean, I think the word dad is too small of a word to explain who he was. Um, The dictionary is too small to describe all the roles that he had, but he was definitely my closest friend in the entire world. And just, I often, I mean, he would call me his partner in crime, but I would call him my other half just because I, he knew what I was feeling before I had even acknowledged that I was feeling it in my own head. He just had a way of seeing people. And it was what drew everyone to him. He was kind of just loved and revered by anyone because he just made people feel seen. And he was, you know, friends with the person that he got his coffee from in the morning at the gas station or the Dunkin' Donuts. And he was friends with, um, you know, the man that he would get his sandwich from at the deli. He just, every waitress and waiter that we ever went and had at the restaurant, he was asking their life story, where they're from. and you know, for a while we were like, dad, this is so embarrassing. Don't be asking them. But I feel like looking back now, it's just, he just saw everyone as a human and just really wanted to make everyone feel like their job was important. Um, and he, it's, I feel like the luckiest thing of my life is that I got to grow up with someone like that as my dad. Um, and I, I like, can't even imagine who I would be if I didn't have him or if I hadn't been shaped by him um but he picked a pretty awesome mom to have raised us with and just they just raised us with love and we were each other's best friends um and we had flaws and we argued and we fought just like a normal family but I really feel like we just were really lucky um but he of my mom my sister and him him and I just we just had this bond that you know will never be replaced by anyone else but definitely leaves you with a pretty big crack in your heart not having him um I feel like I don't know I (laughs) I feel like um every day I realize how much more he really gave to my life and how much more I miss him um like I'm being all choppy with my story but um yeah so after he past i was at home um for those like kind of six months um, because i wasn't at school and the last thing on earth i wanted to do was go back to school but i knew it was something that was really important to him and luckily we had one conversation about it when he was in hospice that it was very important that i don't give up my educational journey um and so that was kind of the only reason i can consider going back to school Um, I knew that I was not going back to Boston, just it was too far away, I needed to be closer to home. So I ended up going to our state's university um, and I started there almost five months to the day after he passed and it, I mean, it felt like the worst decision I had ever made for a while. Um, But I just kind of tried to trust in the fact that this is important to him. And I knew that at some point, I would realize why um and luckily i did over the so i spent three and a half years there and i just you know fell in love with the university and the stuff that i was studying and i found my people and i've grown more and more through that to realize how important his college friends were to him and i know that that's so much of why he wanted me to go was because they were i mean they were like his brothers they were his best friends they did everything together. And they were, you know, super close to us too. Um, they felt like family. And I know, I know now that that is a lot of his reasoning of wanting me to go back is that he just, you know, wanted me to have that same support system that he did, but, um, definitely was hard for a while. And I think it was maybe a year or so after I had gotten there that I just, it just felt like no one my age could understand kind of the emotions that I was going through having grieved a loss at such a young age, but also being, you know, grieving like a caregiving role and just having, um, just like a medical history and, um, all of the different emotions that come with all of that. I definitely was struggling to find my people. Um, and he, um, was a big writer. He worked in PR, um, and had always told me if I, you know, if no one was listening, the page is listening and had always encouraged me to, write my thoughts. And so I every day I would write notes in my phone to him. And one day I just felt like I might as well just put this out somewhere. And I I don't even really remember the day I created the Instagram. I remember trying to find the right name for it, but I don't remember even like the specific moments that led up to me opening the app to create the account. Um, but I, I did. And I shared my first post with no followers, hadn't followed a single person. I didn't attach my name to the account. I had posted no personal pictures. I just was like, I want an outlet. And it kind of got, you know, had a mind of its own. The whole journey has been mind blowing to me, but I just kind of kept posting the words that I was feeling and I remember the first time that I got a follower and I was like, I got nervous and I was like, Oh no, what are these people going to think of my writing and who are they? I don't know them. Um, and I remember after that, I went and like hid my account from a bunch of relatives that I just was like, I don't want anyone I know finding this. And I was definitely very nervous to be vulnerable with those feelings, but it felt easy to somehow spill my secrets with strangers. Um, and it, yeah, I just kind of kept posting and people somehow found the account. And I, I just remember feeling this overwhelming feeling of love and support that like these people I didn't know at all were willing to listen to what I had to say and were, you know, showing support and love. And it just, it, it was like the best friends that I felt like I didn't have in the moment. And it was feeling so much of what I was like so desperately missing in my dad and I just it felt like this you know fortuitous thing that was happening that you know somehow him giving me the love for writing was guiding me through losing him um and it led me to the Instagram and yeah slowly over the past it's been three years now um just this past week um that I've had the account and it blows me away every single day the amount of people that are willing to not only listen to me but share their stories with me and be vulnerable with me it's inspired me so much to you know kind of take ownership of my journey and not be afraid to talk about it in my real life and with my friends and family I definitely still struggle to have people that in my real life I feel understand kind of what I'm going through um but I think a a lot of my personal journey has been advocating for my own needs too and saying I need help or I need support and asking for things and that's solely been learned through this account and learning from other people's posts and stories and videos and their comments and DMs um, have really shaped my grief journey and shaped who I am and I always say on my account that no two losses will ever be the same. And I, I could never put myself in anyone else's shoes, but I can understand the feeling of loss. Like I can understand the feeling of losing someone so special to me and knowing that someone else is having that feeling just instantly bonds you. And another thing I always say is just that I feel like the second you enter kind of the grief club that no one has to join. Um, I always say it's like, they hand you a pair of glasses and the glasses give you like x-ray vision and you're able to see the invisible wounds on everyone else's skin um and you're able to you know just see through your own empathy i feel like that comes from being a graver you're able to see how many people are in pain which is a heartbreaking skill to have but it also just leaves you on such a level of connection that i feel like you're you just i don't know you're just able to bond with people on another level because you can kind of see their pain for what it is and Um, yeah so I know that's helped me a lot is knowing that other people can see my invisible wounds Um, and my account is still very hidden from a lot of my real life Um, I've grown to sharing my name and my pictures and um, my sister got the okay to follow it a couple months ago Um, but it is definitely something that's still nerve-wracking for me to share with people in my own life I was talking to Beth before about I just never want my grief emotions to trigger someone else's. And I know that everyone, you know, it's like, we always say, we feel like people trying to support us don't want to, you know, don't want to bring it up and say something, but in reality, it's obviously always there. Um, and yet somehow I still get stuck in that same mindset of, I don't want to bring it up to other people who are grieving. Um, but it's definitely something that I'm still working on, but slowly getting there. Um, uh, yeah, I feel like that's kind of the majority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's
0: ironic because I always uh, assumed that it was the invisible wounds because it was your broken heart that you couldn't see. You just said it was mm-hmm. the you know the invisible wounds that people get the X-ray vision to be able to see the invisible wounds on your skin. I always thought you it was you know the the broken heart that's inside is the invisible wound that people can't see.
1: I feel like it's it's definitely up to interpretation. I feel like. I, one of my first posts was about how with grief, every morning that you wake up, you're given a bandaid and to cover the scar of the pain that it took to get out of bed. And every time that you face, you know, a picture on the wall or an anniversary or a birthday, you know, it causes a scar, whether it be in your skin or your heart, it, you know, it causes a, scar from the wound of having to go through kind of those emotions again and so i feel like when i look at people i feel like you know our bodies are just littered in band-aids and they're covering all of these invisible wounds um and when you have the glasses on you can see all the you know you can appreciate that they had to get out of bed this morning and that was probably really hard or they had their birthday and that means that it's another year without their loved one and that was probably really hard it just gives you this kind of framework in your mind of understanding pain at another level, um, and so that's kind of how I describe the invisible wounds. But I feel like it's definitely, it's definitely fully up to interpretation. It's whatever you feel like you're, whatever wounds you feel like are invisible. But um, it mostly, yeah, it's just to describe the things that you're going through and no one can see. Like when you break your arm, you have a cast, but when your heart's broken, or you know, your soul's been shattered. There's no way to see those wounds. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful.
0: Um, one of the things that I, I, I put little asterisks when I'm taking notes that your, uh-huh. your dad used some sort of a lingo, like jump into the plan or that, you know, like, and that's exactly how my sister was like, yeah, we're, we're really? doing it. Yeah. Like it's just as long, you know, it was like as long as there was a plan and like some action and stuff that, That's what we were doing. And you just keep going. And, you know, you said you don't ever, I don't even, even when they are on hospice, you still are not able to let yourself think that that means that it's the end. You're never, ever prepared for that. Um, But he did a trial drug. Like, so did she. Um, It was very, I think they there's, I would love to do some sort of research on the, the mindset and the different personalities and how it affects their journeys and things. Well, you're you're going to be in the you're going to be in the uh, the grief arena and the trauma arena. But I I'm just fascinated by the brain and how you know the brain protects us, allows us to feel and understand some things, but not others. Um, totally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing that I <clears throat> noted was um, when you were describing that your your parents were spending a month or so in New Jersey and that your sister, you and your sister stayed home. So you would have been 18 and she was 16.
1: I was day. 17. Yeah. And, and she was 15. 15. Yeah.
0: So like, I mean, if you think about that, I mean, granted that was as five years ago, but uh, there's a lot of, you know, 15 and 17 year olds that wouldn't be able to handle that on their own. Um, and yeah. it just, I I the I wrote an asterisk, you know, like strong and how everybody says, well, you're so strong, which is, which is a compliment. But on the other hand, like you didn't have a choice, Mm -hmm. right? Like you were, it's what had to be done for your dad to be able to get the, the proton therapy treatment that he and your mom, yeah, that you said you had you, I love that you said that your whole family decided on things together.
1: It was definitely, I feel like my parents probably had a decision in their head before they sat down and talked to us, but it was always a open communication like I said I grew to know that family meetings was probably a bad thing but it was always something that we talked about and I I remember the third time that hit it had come back before we started treatment I remember where I was sitting in the room I remember crying and I remember I mean I was just so heartbroken for him that he had to go through it again and I remember he just looked at me and he was like and he was like I just I'm really worried like like what's going through your head I'm really worried about you and I was like well I'm just worried about you And it was, you know, my sister and my mom were sitting in the room, but he just laser focused. He was like, I just am really worried about you just in knowing that kind of, you know, his pain was all of our pain, but we just, I don't know, had an ability to kind of feel it for each other. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I give your parents a lot of credit for being that, um, being that forthright with you and your sister. You know, a lot of times people like, well, you know, that they dance around things or are or, or not a hundred percent honest with things to try yeah. to protect, protect the kids. But I think that, you know, I give them a lot of credit
1: for, for doing yeah. that and
0: allowing you guys
1: to be a part of that.
0: Um, I
1: think because my dad lost his dad to cancer so young and I think that was obviously such a big influence in his life. And I think he was, he was kind of kept a little bit out of the dark in when his dad was sick and he obviously was even younger than we were. but I think that was a big thing for him is that his dad passed and he was kind of like, no one told me it was this bad. like what do you mean he passed? And I think that was a big motivating factor for him to always keep us in the loop and to keep us informed. Um, but they definitely like you know, I, I, I feel like they really did the best with the set of you know the set of cards that they had been given.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, because I'll tell you, I'm a parent and you guys don't come with manuals. So it's, you never know, you know, if you're doing the right thing or not. Um, but it sounds like and it also sounds like your parents were a very united front, which makes a big difference, too, that they were both yes. on the same page. Like you said, they probably had made their decision already before they made met with you and your sister. But just providing that opportunity for you guys to have input is uh, it's remarkable. It's really. Yeah, um,
1: uh, I don't feel like I realized I don't feel like I realized how special the two of them were together until he was sick. Um, And just, you know, at such an age, I don't feel like I was asking a lot of questions about like how they met their relationship, like what they loved about each other, et cetera. Like, I just feel like you're in your own world when you're an adolescent and teenager. Um, But I just, I, I saw my mom just, you know, stop her whole life to be his caregiver without a question that was you know nowhere else she wanted to be. But I just also saw how much my dad appreciated her and like, you know, he'd wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. And if I was on the night shift, he'd like, where's your mom? Can you just check in on your mom? Like, I, I can't see her right now. Can you just go check on her? And mm-hmm. just, you know, if we were at the doctor's office, he'd be like, can you just, where's your mom? Like he'd always just wanted to know where she was. And I feel like it gave him such a sense of comfort just to know when she was around. And it definitely was something very special to see how much they loved each other. Mm-hmm. What an amazing
0: legacy. That's awesome. Um, not 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 everybody has that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is I was going to say was that, um, I, I mean I don't know if you're comfortable with telling people what you're in school for, but I'm thinking yeah. how how okay. like you just you just connected back to your dad's loss of his own father probably affected the way that he parented you and it's probably why he was so in tune with you of like, I'm worried about what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Um, So do you mind telling people what you're you're going to school for right now?
1: Yeah, so I have kind of, I feel like even before my dad got sick, I thought I would be in some type of role working with people. I've just always been fascinated by people. I love just hearing people talk um, and, so I, it's my specialization that I wanted to do has morphed over the years, but I am now in school for mental health counseling. I'm in my second semester of a graduate program to get my master's. Um, I returned to Boston. I knew that it was a, um, a chapter that had been closed, but not a, BIC, not a book that was meant to end yet. Um, so I returned to Boston, which is definitely very hard to return without my dad. Um, It brought up a lot of, you know, being back in a place that I hadn't, you know, last time I had been there was with my dad, but it also, it really felt like the first time since he had passed that I was so confident I was doing the right thing and that he would be so proud of what I was doing. I feel like I can tell myself that a lot, but this was the first step that I had taken that I really, really felt it. Um, And it's been, it's been awesome. I've loved my classes. I've loved my program. Um, I'm going to be specializing in trauma and grief studies. I would love to work with adolescents and teens and young adults who have gone through any type of trauma, but um, I obviously specifically have a heart for those who have gone through grief. Um, I've luckily gotten some experience in my undergrad years of working specifically with that type of population and definitely feel confident that's it, that it is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, And I've professor once actually asked kind of like what the reason, like what my goal was and why that, why I was in the profession or working towards the profession I was in. And I have always felt um, that this one model my dad had has kind of shaped my entire life and how they raised us, but also um, how I want to live my life. And so he would always say, leave it better. And when he was growing up, he was, as I said, the baby of 12, they did not have any money to spare. And the only thing they would do for vacations is that they'd go camping. And it was specifically something that his dad would do with him that he remembers doing with his dad before his dad passed. Um, They were always hiking and camping. And his dad would always say, when you go into a campsite and you go to leave, you always leave it better than you found it. And that was his big role. You always leave it better than you found it. And when my dad's dad passed when he was 11, you know, he didn't have a whole host of memories with him and one of the things he always remembered was those camping trips and the saying leave it better and so he would always teach us that that also applies to the world it applies to people it applies to places that you go and see um and that you should always try to leave things better than you found them. whether that's the day the hour the person um and i truly feel like that is how he lived his life he saw people he always tried to listen he always tried to appreciate someone no matter how big or small their role was in his life and it's definitely something that's become really important to me and I feel like choosing kindness and love is one of the only options of control we have in our lives um, and obviously there are many times when you can't it's too hard to choose and um, but in those moments where you can choose to add love and kindness to the world I feel like it's really important to do so and so I I'm hoping to leave the world a little bit better than I found it. It can certainly feel tough after the past few years we've had um, to have hope towards that, but that is definitely what I hope to do in my profession and whether it's with one-on-one clients, groups, seminars, I'm not sure quite yet, but I just hope that I can leave people even an ounce better than I found them.
0: Mm, That's awesome. That's awesome. What a great, goal to be working for, you
1: know? Yeah. It, <laughs> and can, it can feel hard sometimes, but it definitely is very motivating and having the personal connection to it really helps.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: That's great. So, you know, I usually finish with, if
0: there's a final tip or something that you would like to share with the people that are listening today, what would you like to, sh- what would you like to say?
1: Yeah, I feel like the leave it better model was one thing I was definitely going to mention if it hadn't come up before, but I think my biggest tip is usually not for the people who are probably listening to this because they probably have been through grief themselves. Um, But my biggest thing to those who are surrounding grievers, I feel like, is just ask. I feel like everything comes down to just asking. I feel like I myself don't even know what to say or do correctly for people when they go through loss, even having been through it. I feel like there is no guidebook, there's no right thing, and it can be really hard to speak up and ask for what someone needs but it's even harder as the person to ask for what you need at least in my opinion um, or in my experience so I think the biggest thing is just ask just be aware of the people around you you know show up when in whatever ways you can Um, but if you're not sure of what to do asking the question never hurts Um, and yeah I feel like that operate off of kindness and love and just always try to see people for who they are know that, you know, they're doing the best they can and just ask what you can do for them. That's great. That's great. <clears throat> I've gotten to the point
0: where I try to not, you know, a lot of times people say, well, please let us know if there's anything you can do. I always try to offer something specific and then they can yeah. still say no, but to say, you know, can I bring dinner on Thursday? Do you want to meet for a walk on Friday? You know, totally. those kind of things. Yeah. Because that generic I- Let us know what you can do is too open-ended.
1: Totally. And I feel like I definitely have realized that going through my own grief journey and watching other people have to go through the grief journey. It's a very helpless feeling to be like I can relate to what you're feeling, but there's nothing that I can say to you that will make it better or, you know, eliminate the pain. And that's a very helpless feeling that I'm sure you know most people who have gone through grief can relate to but it is so hard not to have just like a guidebook of okay do this and it'll help do this and so I feel like I also know people going through grief who need totally different things even you know my sister my mom and I we all need totally different things mm-hmm. and I often try you know treat others how you'd want to be treated I'd love to do for others what would help me but that also does not help everyone. And um, so I feel like I've just grown to try to just ask, just say, you know, I'm creating a safe space for you. I'd love to be able to do something for you. Would this help or would this help? And you know, sometimes it's too much. They don't they can't tell you right then. And so just following up and being like, you know, I'm still thinking of you, I'm still here. I really would love to do this. Do you think that would help? Or, you know, can I stop by and just do this or whatever it may be? But
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah,
0: totally agree. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much for being here, and I'm going to say, thank you know, you. that this will probably not be the last time we hear from you because you're going to go into this field and you're going to learn all kinds of great stuff, and you can come back and teach us <laughs> all the thing, you know, the things that we either need to know or need not to need to know not to do. Um, uh-huh. But I just, you know, um, I will put her Instagram profile in the show notes if you're listening and you want to find Emily on Instagram. But just. I think you're you're five years in, you're three years on Instagram, like you're not going to start showing up in this space and neither am I. So I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm going to say, we'll see you again soon, Emily.
1: Thank you so much for having me on here.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks for being here. If you liked this episode or you are a fan of the show, the best way to support it is to share it on social media and with your family and friends. For more of my thoughts on the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. As always, remember, we can use grace, grit, and gratitude to grow with our grief.